They are using all kinds of symbology. What is at stake? It is a big idea. A new world order where diverse nations are drawn together in common cause to achieve the universal aspirations of mankind. My question to you is, in any of your government jobs, have you ever been briefed on the subject of UFOs? And if you have, when was it? What were you told? Well, if I had been briefed on that, I'm sure it was probably classified and I couldn't talk about it. When I got out in 1989, we had cataloged 57 different species. We walked over to one side of the lab and he said, by the way, we've discovered a base. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. The ability that we might actually time travel is something that's always fascinated me. Ever since I was a young kid, I remember uh, as a kid watching movies like Back to the Future and... Uh, you know, watching TV shows like The Time Tunnel, which I used to catch on Nick and Night as a kid. And I was always fascinated with the subject of time traveling, the ability to be able to maybe go back and fix a mistake, something that, you know, maybe it wasn't a mistake of ours, but something big. Like, for example, could you go back and stop the Kennedy assassination? Would you? If you could, would you go back in time and maybe save John Lennon from getting shot? A lot of historical events have happened in time, but could we go back and change them? Now, before we get to our guests, I do have a couple of news items that I do want to get to, and this comes actually right out of openminds.tv, our good friend Alejandro Rojas' website. They're reporting the scientists find a hint of life on Saturn's moons. And this is actually coming directly from our Daily Mail I'm going to go ahead and open this up and read this to you guys. I'm going to link it in the chat also. So scientists have found evidence that there, has, there is life on Saturn's biggest moon, Titan, and they've discovered clues that primitive aliens are breathing in Titan's atmosphere and feeding on the fuel at the surface. The startling discoveries made using an orbiting spacecraft are revealing in two separate reports. Now let me link here before I continue on. So you guys can read along with me the very interesting article. Check this out. So data from NASA's Cassini probe has analyzed the complex chemistry on the surface of Titan, the only moon known to have a dense atmosphere. Its surface is covered with mountains, lakes, and rivers, which have led astronomers to call it the most Earth-like world in our solar system. Organic chemicals have already been detected on the 3,200-mile-wide planet. Uh, but the liquid on Titan is not water, but methane. And scientists actually expect life there to be methane-based, if there is life on there. Uh, the first paper of the journal actually says, shows that hydrogen gas is flowing down through Titan's atmosphere, dispersing at the surface, suggesting it could be, uh, actually could be beings that are breathing some kind of alien air or, you know, some kind of alien bug that is breathing down there. So there's something alive on Titan. The second paper on the journal actually uh, says, uh, reports there is lack of certain chemicals on the surface, leading scientists to believe it may be being consumed by some life form. Interesting stuff. 
Very interesting article. I don't know if you guys have seen that, but that comes directly from openminds.tv with our good friend Alejandro T. Rojas, of course, who does a very good show here on Block Talk Radio. And he's on the dial now, I believe. Really cool stuff. Speaking of guys on the dial, check out Jesse Randolph's show tomorrow night at midnight. It's going to be on ufonotradio.com. You can check out that website and check out all the information on there. You can have the chat room open as soon as the show goes on at midnight. Don't forget to check that out, guys, as well as Unraveling the Secrets tomorrow night. And my own show, The Jackal's Head, over on tenacityradio.com. Make sure to check those shows out. Now, I have another interesting article here. It's actually a ring-shaped UFO that appears over Los Angeles. And there's, a, I believe, a video attached to this. I'm going to post this in the chat room also. It says, a ring-shaped UFO appeared on yesterday, or May 30th, over Los Angeles skies. Um, sightings of this type over L.A. have been reported before in different places in L.A. Uh, most of the time in a UFO sighting like this, a light like a star only bigger appears doing the same dance above uh, that can be seen. I guess as a star, it just starts dancing around, although it is difficult to say what the object might actually be. The videographer uh, shoots the video of the rain-shaped object over the Los Angeles skies. Uh, he also gave the viewers a long shot of the perspective and estimates that the UFO is about five miles away, moving over, actually, it's called moving over Red Dondo Beach, Redondo Beach or Manhattan Beach, one of the two closest to the airport, funny enough, it is close to an airport. Uh, but let me link that here also, guys, in the chat. And I see the chat's getting a little packed, and here we have a few folks in here. Welcome, everybody, to the show. We're going to have our main guest of the night on here in a couple seconds, uh, Mr. David Lewis Anderson. But that's the two news items I did want to give out tonight. Very interesting stuff. Life on the Moon of Titan. That's amazing. It's a moon that might have life on it, some kind of organic life. Now, remember, folks, it doesn't have to be life as, you know, we have here on planet Earth. It doesn't have to be intelligent life forms, uh, per se. It doesn't have to be humanoid, even. Uh, even if it's some kind of a bug just crawling around the surface of that moon, it would be amazing enough because this means that life could survive at any single part of this universe. If it could survive under these conditions and can thrive under these conditions, it means it could do that in any planet out there. Hell, Pluto could have some form of life on it. We don't know. We just simply don't know. It's amazing stuff. And uh, let me go ahead and, and see if our guest is ready to be beamed into the show. Um, if our guest is ready, I think we should go ahead and get him in the show here. Uh, let's uh, go ahead and beam an end to the show. What do you say? Yes, sir. Immediately, sir. Mr. Anderson, are you there? Yes, I am. Can you hear me? Loud and clear. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Skywatchers Radio TV, sir. Oh, thank you so much, Angel. It's a pleasure to be here on Skywatchers Radio TV. It's a it's an honor to have you here, sir, and have a person who is doing the work you're doing on our show. It's uh, it's great to see that there are folks doing this kind of work. Uh, before we get too much into it, uh, I gave out the website theandersoninstitute.com earlier. Uh, let's 
jump on right on that. What exactly are you guys doing on the Anderson Institute? And tell the folks who may not know about the Anderson Institute a little bit about it. Oh, the Anderson Institute, uh, we're a private research and development laboratory based in New Mexico in the United States of America. Uh, we have uh, activities and partners in several different areas of the world, including uh, India, uh, Japan, and South Korea. Uh, our focus is on the development of what we call time-controlled technologies. Uh, the Anderson Institute itself, uh, some people may be familiar in the 1980s, we were actually operating under the name of the Time Technology Research Center uh, based on Long Island, uh, just outside of uh, New York City. But our primary focus is a private research and development laboratory and totally committed to uh, the development and research of time control technologies. That's amazing. Yes, folks, people are working on time control technologies. It, you know, this is one, like I was saying earlier in the show, it's one of my favorite topics to speak about, time travel, the possibility of actually, you know, going back in time or going forward in time. Uh, how close do you think we are to actually being able to, to be able to time travel? Oh, that's an amazing question. I, I think it comes a little bit too late. Uh, actually, there have been attempts at time control underway since as early as the 1940s, and mm-hmm. there's been multiple technologies that have been applied. Uh, but what's interesting, and one of the reasons why we've come out in public, is to make people aware uh, that the technologies are now quite widely applied. There are five governments uh, that we're active with, uh, five major countries that are heavily invested, not just in development, but refinement of existing technologies that are being exercised. Uh, the technology angel in each country differs slightly, um, but the, the technologies are being exercised today and have been for quite some time. Now, does this go back to, say, the Philadelphia experiment as well? Uh, actually, uh, a little bit different than that. Uh, okay. Uh, of course, there's the great stories of the legends of experiments in time, like the Philadelphia experiment, the Montauk project, a lot of activities, activities in the former Soviet Union. But most right. of the work that we're seeing is coming out of uh, physics laboratories, either funded by government agencies or private corporations. So these are real physicists and uh, different agencies around the world uh, working on real projects funded by private enterprise or government uh, budgets and government agencies. Now, how did you exactly get involved in uh, time control research? Uh, by accident, I could say that. That probably <laughs> would be enough for your listeners, Angel. Uh, actually, I was recruited at a pretty young age by the United States Air Force, and I, I became a scientist working at uh, the Air Force Flight Test Center in the Mojave Desert in California. They got me involved in uh, what was high-speed uh, navigation systems and then high-speed uh, space-based navigation systems. And during the course of one of, uh, one of our missions uh, and one of our projects over a period of several months, I observed some things that were quite interesting that had to do with the what's called inertial frame dragging in physics. It's a twisting of space-time around uh, the Earth as it rotates, or, or any mass as it turns in space. And the relationship that I saw that came out of the model we created was was quite interesting. And what it was was actually a new insight into the nature of time. And at that point, when I finally started understanding what was there, um, it became a passion for me. And uh, ever since that, that, that period, I've been focused on doing nothing but uh, the development of uh, what we labeled time warp field theory and time control technologies, not just at the Anderson Institute, but with other partners around the world. 
And who are some of the other folks you, you folks have worked with? That, what, would we know some of these, uh, I guess, uh, scientists that you guys have worked with? Oh, absolutely. I, I think it would be a real pleasure to share with your, your listeners, which is one of the reasons why it's such mm-hmm. a pleasure to be on your show, Angel, because you're always on the, the leading edge of, of, of what's happening in the world and the breaking news. And what we're seeing right okay. now is, it's a great concern. It's wonderful work that you and your team do. But what we're seeing from the inside of the scientific community is that the capabilities within time-controlled technologies that are being exercised are now exceeding our capacity as humans for moral and ethical reasoning, which is one of the reasons why we're here to talk. And some of these partners we're working with, the scientists who are in the middle of this every day feel the same. Uh, there's organizations, uh, let's talk about China first. I've, I've met in Beijing with their, um, uh, their National People's Congress for Education and Science and their Public Health and their Ministry of Science and Technology. They're trying to make a move into this arena. Uh, they're not quite there yet, but with the second largest R&D budget, they'll be there soon. But the countries that are really interesting are Japan. Japan has a wonderful facility uh, just north of Kyoto City where they're working on quantum tunneling, the ability uh, to actually developing the ability to send information backwards in time. Russia mm-hmm. has been, many of your listeners are probably aware, Russia has been involved in this area of research since the 1960s. Yep. The former Soviet Union uh, had its greatest challenges. Uh, their development work actually came to quite to a standstill, but they're picking it up again. In the United States, uh, Angel, we have uh, Area S4, the Anderson Institute, and, of course, many people might be aware of Dr. Mallet at the University of Connecticut. Oh, yes. Who's also quite active right now in a a very unique and what we think is an interesting approach to time control technology. Um, United States, we've seen the NEC funding Princeton University for quantum tunneling experiments. But for your listeners, uh, the, the most fascinating group we work with is uh, based in India. Um, we work with um, uh, we've worked with their Ministry of Science and Technology. We've met with them many times in uh, Mumbai, and also uh, their India's DRDO. That's their Defense Research and Development Organization. They have an effort there, Angel, that is ten times larger than the rest of the world's efforts combined in time control oh, wow. technology. They're already they're not just um, uh, as I mentioned, they're not just developing the technologies, they're developing the products for uh, commercialization of the technology today. Which, that's very important. The commer- the, making it commercialized, uh, I think, is an important step and to be able to get this actually as a possibility to happen uh, because we're going to need a lot of money to fund this kind of research to be able to make time travel possible. Robert Mullet's uh, experiments are very, very fascinating to me because it, it, on the on the level of just the theory itself, it could very well be a working time travel machine. Uh, literally, this machine, when he turns it on, he'll be able to communicate any time in the future only to that point where he turned the machine on. So it literally is a gateway in time. Uh, that's a fascinating machine. Uh, if, if he's going to be able to actually achieve this, it's going to take a lot of money. And it's, the commercial uh, aspect is very important. Uh, but let me ask you, you were also in the Air Force, is that correct? That is correct, yes. And how long were you in the Air Force? And what, and what happened with uh, the Air Force? Why did they let you leave to pursue your, your work privately? Well, it was an interesting story, and I always like to preface this because um, I don't, I want to, I'm very grateful to the Air Force. As a young person, they gave me a tremendous opportunity, Angel, to work with 
uh, technologies and have access to resources that most people spend a lifetime and don't see. They were very kind to me, and I was grateful. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I had proposed to Air Force Systems Command in DARPA what I had observed and wrote a few papers on the subject. And um, time, they were so focused on the mission we had. When you're in the military, you have specific missions, and even mm -hmm. if you observe things that are interesting, sometimes the mission takes priority. And uh, uh, interesting enough, I truly wanted to stay in the Air Force and to pursue this work with Air Force Systems Command and DARPA. Uh, unfortunately, uh, the, they didn't realize what was being proposed, uh, at least not until about two weeks prior to my separation, when they notified me I could not leave the Air Force. And it's kind of a long story. I actually had to go to Senator Rockefeller down in West Virginia, request a congressional inquiry, because by that time, two weeks away, I had already laid the groundwork for the Time Technology Research Center. And I eventually got out. It took me about nine months and then continued the work. I really, truly would have liked to have done the work in the military, but then again, there might be advantage doing it as a, a private institute. And what uh, what results were actually achieved at the uh, Time Research Center on Long Island? Well, it was interesting. It was a long, um, a, a long period of time of not of, of, of learning what we we didn't know, and uh, we actually uh, began the Time Technology in Institute with a theory uh, that describes some of the inertial frame dragging effects around the Earth and something we call time warp field theory. At the Anderson Institute, uh, in the 1980s, we refined that and uh, built prototypes uh, to build our first, what we call a time warp field generator. That's an actual uh, system and machine that can create small spherical fields where you can actually control the rate of time inside the field to make it move faster or slower relative to the rate of time outside. Uh, we went through uh, two generations of that. And when we our third generation, which was right uh, just past the turn of the century, um, we learned, uh, we, we realized a couple things. We realized, we finally started understanding what we were seeing uh, in time warp field technology, and we also needed to expand our resources. So we spent pretty much the last five years building a global network and alliances with different agencies to uh, work. Well, you're still there, David? Hey, yes, I'm still here. Can you hear me? Oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, I lost you for a second there. Sorry about that. You were saying? Oh, and, uh, yeah, through the through the 1990s, we built uh, three generations of what we call time field generators. Uh, okay. And at the third generation, uh, we stopped what we were doing to a certain point. Uh, at that point in time, we were in the public eye. And in, in around 2002, uh, when we when we brought our, our third generation at the time, we're field generator online, um, mm -hmm. we achieved results that in our minds were so profound and significant that we needed to step back a little bit and kind of go underneath the radar to expand our organization and resources as well as operational security. That's amazing. Uh, now, you actually have been on a very big radio show, which actually we spoke about briefly uh, before the show. You've been on Coast to Coast. Uh, well, the last time you were on Coast to Coast was what, 2002? No, actually I've been on Coast to Coast a number of times. I was, uh, I think back in 1999 and, or in 2002, just before we uh, started developing the global network. And then again, I was okay. on in uh, January of this year. With Mr. So you, you, you took that time off uh, from after Coast to Coast to kind of do this research. 
Uh, and that's amazing. Let me ask you, uh, is the influence of the government really so strong uh, to force you to make uh, such a drastic change in your approach uh, to research? Oh, 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 absolutely. As a matter of fact, that was one of the reasons uh, a lot of people ask us uh, why we went dark and they felt we disappeared. Uh, it actually surprises me when people ask me that question, uh, but everybody has to understand in the type of work we do, we have a very large number of private and government partners, and the visibility and results we were seeing in the work became so profound and the need to protect it was so high that I don't want to sound so clandestine, but we decided to go dark and take the program underground and underneath the radar first so we could control operational security. But also at that point, Angel, we realized that we simply didn't have the resources uh, to commercialize the technology and uh, to expand it further. So we spent actually uh, a good part of five to six years uh, building a global organization that spans all the way hmm. through uh, Asia, uh, Europe, and the Americas uh, that focuses only on one, one, one mission, and that's the development and commercialization of time control technology. Now, in the last five years, because it's been a, a, quite a while since you were last on post, uh, in the last five years, uh, your technology, how much has it advanced in the last five years? Uh, pretty far, and I realize I didn't answer your question, Angel, about the influence yeah. of government. Um, when you, and I'd ask your listeners to think about this, uh, the investment in time control technology is real. These agencies are experimenting with time control technologies every day right now and have been for a decade. Um, and I would encourage your listeners to please uh, read up on this as much as they can. But when you look at this type of scientific breakthrough, Angel, it not only op it offers tremendous commercial prospects, and it attracts interest and level of attention from the private sector and private enterprise. And a person, and it's hard to understand unless you live in this world like I have for the last 25 years, but one can never underestimate the financial aspirations and the power that these large businesses have. And also to take that a step further, the political and economical aspirations and power of government uh, greatly affect everything we do. And, and that's actually another reason why we had to step out of the public eye for a period of five years because it was getting very difficult to manage the politics of, of how agencies wanted to use the technology. Oh, I could imagine. Uh, have you had uh, agents breathing down your neck in the last a uh, couple of years since you've you know, had some advancements? Yeah, I would say, you know, every, every agency is motivated differently. Mm -hmm. And, and, I, and, you know, I, I want to be fair to everybody. The first scientists we work with and agencies, they only see one thing. They see the tremendous good that this technology um, can have for human society as a whole on this planet. I mean, the, you know, it's very – the impact that this technology will have on our society on this planet it's unlike anything anybody has seen before. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. But at the same time, uh, remember that a lot of government agencies are active in this. and have been for quite some time. And many of these government agencies are, are focused just like any government agency is uh, to support their nation. And many times they're looking at weaponization of the technology or using the technologies in ways that help their nation survive and prosper, which in the end is really the, the fundamental goal of a nation. And so sometimes it become a little bit manipulated in ways that maybe a scientist would yeah. necessarily agree are the best for society. Well, let, let's look at let's look at that question in itself. For example, how exactly would would this technology benefit uh, society as a whole? 
Uh, give us some of the applications that could be used to actually benefit society, you know, with, with regards to to this experiment or these experiments you folks are doing. Oh, good. Let's. Well, I like that. Let's talk about the positives first. That's always yeah. The, the first application. This is where India is quite far ahead in, in their, their the DRDO there. Uh, there, one of the great applications is medical applications. A lot of people ask Angel, why do I say time control and not time travel? It is time travel technology. You have the ability mm -hmm. to accelerate time, slow down time, even reverse time in some situations. But we like to use the word time control because when you say time travel, people people tend to chuckle at you a little bit. Um, but I tell you, there's a lot of things people have chuckled at. Um, oh, they don't yeah. chuckle anymore. <laughs> Um, but the first application is medical applications. Uh, one of the first products a lot of people will see will be in the medical field. Uh, one of the applications will be stasis fields, the ability to create chambers, uh, the ability to uh, use chambers that you can put a, a human in that can actually slow or stop time to prevent further damage or um, degradation of a medical condition um, or maybe perhaps even regress uh, a condition inside of living organisms. Uh, you know, we talk about viewing and recording history. In the type of work we do, we have many producers who are always calling us, asking us for advice on their movies. And, you know, we always joke around. Actually, it may not be too far in the future where you actually can view and record history, and your documentaries would actually be made up of actual film footage of key events in history instead of the simulations. Even though we joke all the time, Angel, is that a lot of times these simulations are probably a little bit more exciting than real life was. Uh, but think about that. What if you could actually view and record the dinosaurs? What about the opportunity to retrieve future cures, to accelerate research, or even uh, retrieve cures for diseases from, uh, from the future that could alleviate uh, suffering on the earth? The ability to warn society of natural disasters that are about to come. Uh, of course, the ability, a lot of people are, are concerned about the application of the technology, but because the technology is difficult to comprehend, we think that once people understand it, it might even be an opportunity for human society on the planet to unite and learn through Those would be just a few of the, the pros I would see. David, I wanted to uh, let you know we have one of my co-hosts, uh, Mr. Rick Osborne, on the line with us. Uh, Rick, do uh, you want to add anything to the conversation with Mr. Uh, David Lewis-Anderson tonight? Yeah. Uh, is it possible, first of all, now I'm going to open this with a joke, but then I've got a couple serious questions. <laughs> is, it, is it possible to jump ahead two weeks and get the lottery numbers? <laughs> well, let's... Uh, Let's, uh, let, let's say it a little bit differently for, for your listeners. The, the short answer is yes, and, and that's a big part about what's happening in Japan. And even here in the United States, there's a, there's a little project that was funded by the U.S. government. Uh, it was called Superluminal Propagation, um, and it was a funded by, it was run by Dr. Uh, uh, Lejun Wang at Princeton University, where he actually was able to send information faster than the speed of light, which essentially moves it backwards in time. This is what agencies... Yeah, I'm actually very interested in that experiment. I, my background is laser physics, hence my yes. awareness of that experiment. And, yeah, he was successful. He was holding. Yeah, and he was, he was very successful. His challenge at the time, he could only get information on the leading edge of the pulse to be intelligible as it moved faster than the speed of light backwards in time. And, and that's what these agencies are doing. It's what Japan is doing uh, in their facility uh, 
uh, next to Biwa Lake, uh, north of Kyoto City. They've taken that work and they've advanced it uh, generations. Uh, they're, what they're achieving there is just phenomenal. So, so I guess on to my serious questions here. First of all, Einstein was mistaken, and you mentioned earlier frame dragging, inertial frame dragging, or um, relative frame dragging, which is reminiscent of Lorentzian relativity rather than Einsteinian relativity. Am I on the right track here? Uh, yeah, fair enough. Keep going. Let's uh, let me see where you're going with it. Okay. So I'm also aware of, quite familiar actually, with some hypotheses put forth by the late Dr. Tom Van Flandern. Are you aware of his work? Uh, I can't say I, I am. We, our work focuses really with the DRDO, the Japanese government, our facility, okay. and, and our partners. We don't, we don't uh, uh, cover a lot outside of that. Okay, well, just a little bit of background. Tom Van Flandern was an astronomer for the Naval Observatory for his entire career. And he had some interesting, intriguing, downright compelling hypotheses about the speed of gravity being the upper limit, and he said that it is at least 20 times the speed of light as laid down by Einstein. And he laid out some math that, like I said, is pretty compelling. And I don't know how this might relate to your work, but I, I think there may be a nice dovetail there. Yeah, I, I think there could be. Um, we focus in, in very, in Rick, and Rick, by the way, Rick, it's a pleasure to meet you. Uh, welcome, welcome, you welcome too, sir. Show. I've Rick, I forgot my social graces for a moment. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, absolutely, yes. We have, we have a little bit of a unique view on gravity, and it's a little bit of a play on words, but um, we, we see gravity, um, uh, we, we label it differently. We take a very, very different approach from gravity than other people. And, and I'd say even Einstein took this approach later in his career. Um, our feeling is, is, and let me explain it, gravity, gravity doesn't exist. We think... Um, it's ridiculous to think that there's a big hand on the back of the moon that's pushing it to the earth as it spins around that keeps it from flying out into space. What we see gravity is is simply curved space-time in action, number one. And what we also see gravity as is a very dangerous topic as, as a label and conversation, at least within our, in our walls, because what we see as gravity is it's a label that many people, including listeners on the show, put on something they don't understand. And we're very good as scientists sometimes. All of us studied gravity in elementary school and even high school we learned the formulas and we can show how, how gravity performs and it's repeatable and predictable. But to really understand it, it's like time. Uh, it's kind of like St. Augustine's definition of, or his play on words with time. Uh, what then is time? If I ask somebody if they know what it is, they say yes, but when I ask them to explain it to me, they're at a loss for words. The same thing is true of gravity. In our model, what we see simply is gravity is curved space-time in action. So in the end, the mathematical equations are the same, but we look at the word gravity quite different. We look at it as curved space-time in action, and as time to inertial frame dragging, and of course that would link into what you're talking about with regards to your colleague as well. Right. Okay, so I think we're pretty much on the same page. And what it ends up being is that gravity is dependent on mass only to a certain extent. Because right. mass is dependent on time and space. Am I also on the right track with that? Absolutely. Okay, so if we have 
mass being made up of time and space, and therefore distance, then we also have time being interrelated to mass, space, time, and another force that we call gravity. But um, yes. they act differently, and they react with different phenomena. Uh, at least our perception is different for each of the phenomena. Let me put it that way. Yes, they well may, said. They may react exactly the same as far as the forces see each other, but how we see the forces is just how we see the forces. And, of course, Einstein was correct in one regard. Anything that happened beyond the speed of light we'll never detect unless we can build a superluminal detector, which was mm -hmm. beyond his comprehension. Now, okay. Now, having said that, I do believe it is possible to build a superluminal detector. And uh, there's even an approach I have in mind, and it's related to how we detect neutrinos. We don't detect neutrinos directly because they just pass right through the detectors. But what we do detect is the secondary effects of neutrinos passing through other materials, namely water and the photon that it gives off when it does that. So my contention is that, or my hypothesis, I guess, is that when superluminal effects actually happen, then there should be secondary effects that we could detect. Absolutely. This is actually very key, Rick, to what we're doing. Um, one of the concerns, and I just want to go around in a circle just for 30 seconds because this is actually very important to me. One of the reasons why I actually wanted to come on, on your show with, your, with Angel and yourself is that we see right now the technologies that are being exercised um, have implications that it's very difficult for the people who are exercising to understand. When you look at manipulating or engineering historical timeline, it, it, it involves a complex web of interdependencies that are very, very uh, difficult uh, to predict. And mm -hmm. one of the reasons why we're coming forward and many other scientists are concerned is that the capabilities of these technologies in different, not just at the Anderson Institute, but at other locations, are becoming more powerful. And people are using them without understanding the consequences for scientists. So getting back to your point, this is a very important part of our mission right now. Um, and I'd be interested in learning anything that might be possible to help because we see a four-step solution. If we're going to control, if we're going to, how do we want to say it? If we're going to ensure that this technology benefits uh, the population and the societies on this planet, we need to do four things. We need to request that all governments and demand uh, all governments and agencies provide full disclosure and transparency, number one. Number two, we have to launch an educational initiative, which we're working with these different agencies and governments to do. Number three, very difficult, we have to come up with a moral compass guided by human consciousness as a whole on the planet, crossing all geographic, political, and religious lines, um, that determines not only how the technology is going to be used, but further developed. But number four, which hits right on your point, is we must be able to regulate and monitor. And we actually have a primitive device we call a temporal tremor detector that actually is being designed as part of a plan for a global network, a satellite-based network, 
to determine any time a time-controlled technology is exercised. Any time, so similar to what's used for um, monitoring of, of nuclear activity, but actually somewhat uh, more simple than that. So if what you're describing is a secondary effect, this isn't our approach with the temporal tremor detector, uh, which is like a seismic detector, but the intent is the same. And I'm not as familiar with what you're describing with neutrinos uh, and, and uh, as they pass through water, what can be detected. Uh, but I'd certainly be interested to learn more. Okay. Yeah, actually, it's a pretty well-known phenomenon and a uh, fairly sound approach with a couple of limitations, which is probably more than we need to discuss here. But the... Uh, <laughs> You know, there, there's a fine line between good science and high-tech party tricks, and uh, and sonoluminescence being one of those, by the way. Um, but as far as detecting secondary effects, the science is accepted. Whether mm -hmm. it's right or not is immaterial when it is accepted. So... Um, if you use accepted methods and accepted technologies, then your science is more likely to be accepted. Right yeah, or that's, it's, it's quite a challenge. It's a fine line we dance on every day. Uh, we're a group of, I mean, pretty much if you look at the staff of the Anderson Institute where we're based, we're all either physicists, scientists, uh, mathematicians, or computer scientists, pretty much as a whole. Uh, but one of the challenges we have, where I both agree and disagree with your comment, is to understand the nature of time. And this is something that human societies have struggled for millennia to understand. And they've struggled, uh, and they've never really been successful in defining the true nature of time. And one of the things that we encourage at the Anderson Institute, uh, why we still are scientists, we, we see the definition of time not being just a scientific definition, not just being a spiritual definition or a portrayal in literature. All the different perspectives uh, that look at time from a different standpoint um, may be all part of the same solution, just coming from a different perspective. Why we see the need to separate science from religion and spirituality and, and other uh, materials on the subject, we see it part of the same. And that, that comes actually to a point. When we, mm -hmm. look at, when we look at young, we do a lot of lectures around the world, uh, with college students. One of the first things we try to teach them is that they need to understand the scientific method. They need to live in it. But to be truly good space-time physicists, they must take one extra step. It's a very important step. They must realize that their, um, their view of time is limited by their biological and cultural evolution. Uh, we've been biologically and culturally, we have evolved to look at time and space in one certain way. And let's take a look for a moment at the biological evolution of the human mind. What's the function of our human mind? To rationalize what our senses perceive, which are limited, with our mind's belief system. So Correct. if we can't sense and perceive it, then our mind's belief system can't accept it. And the scientific method helps us there, but in many ways it also hurts us. For example, one of the things that you might be familiar with, Rick, is um, uh, for colleagues of mine, John Archibald Wheeler and Edwin Taylor, uh, bless them both, they, they both passed away, one of them recently, but um, they, uh, they wrote a, a book about invariance of the space-time interval. It's a simple exercise. You tell a college student, hypothetically, for a moment, take a look at your wristwatch 
forget about time as you know it today and convert it from seconds to meter, meters, just so happy using the speed of light as a conversion factor. If you then go back and try to solve your space-time physics problems, whether you're talking about general relativity or special relativity, pretty much most of the solutions boil down to basic algebra. And when something, and, and what we try to teach people is learn and live in the scientific method, but also understand that if you can't get beyond your senses perceptions and those limitations and, and, and understand you have that limitation, you're capping your learning. And many times the scientific method does that as well because we're looking for proof that we can sense and perceive within our own minds and bodies perceptions, uh, that measurement or that number, that figure, that statistic. And many times we know that the true nature of our reality isn't what we perceive. And uh, so there's ways to learn from both directions, uh, I think. Oh well, yeah, you could even you could even use sorry to cut you off, Rick. You could even use uh, fish, for example. Their reality is underwater. That you know, you take a fish out of the ocean, and they're going to freak out because they don't know what the heck is going on. They don't know this three-dimensional world that is our reality. So reality definitely is a perception. Uh, Rick, you were going to say something? Yeah, actually, uh, where I'm going with this, I, I'm, I don't mean to skip around on you, sir, but <laughs> I, I need to know this because I've followed your work as, close as, as closely as I could, given your security, and it's actually pretty tight. Mm -hmm. um, I have to surmise, speculate, that the I in quadratic equation comes in very heavily with how you manipulate time. Uh, you know, it's, you're talking about imaginary I, I assume, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, um, to, a, to a degree, yes, where it really comes into play is in uh, an area we call resonance of a boundary layer. And just real quickly, I mentioned time where field generators, they create spherical fields. The most fascinating area that has been the most challenging for us is understanding the boundary layer. That's where you have a time rate inside the field that's different from a time rate outside. In the boundary layer where the transition in time rates happen, um, uh, talking about the I in the quadratic equation, actually the I has a huge role in understanding the nature of the boundary layer and even resonating a time warp field. This is something we do with our, our, our partners in Japan. Uh, the other thing that I would speculate is that you have run across something that you don't know how to really identify or describe, but it has the nature of polarization of time. Am I correct? Well, I, I'm not too proud to say we run across things we uh, don't understand all the time. Sometimes I feel while we make progress and learn every day, we don't know what we don't know yet about time yeah. and even some technologies we're working with. Um, uh, with regards to polarization, um, uh, there's aspects of that. Our greatest challenge, though, Rick, was in understanding when we built our first two generations of time were field generators, we actually realized once we got over the initialization of a field, we seemed to see extra power coming out of the field that we didn't understand where it was coming from. It violated the laws of physics, which we don't believe is possible. Um, hmm. And what we learned in our third generation time work field, um, talking about something we didn't understand, is what was really happening. We were essentially accessing potential energy that was stored in curved space-time around the Earth. Um, sure. 
which is, is, is quite a fascinating area. So it's kind of like a space-time mode of force, we call it internally. But that curved space-time around the Earth, it's kind of like a spring, almost, if for your listeners. As, as the Earth spins in space, it doesn't just distort space-time, but because of the rotation, it actually twists space-time. And if the Earth were to disappear, space-time would spin back. Now, that sounds quite light, because the effect of inertial frame dragging is measured in fractions of arc seconds per year. But when you do the calculations with the C, um, is that the amount of power available is quite high. And what we realized we were doing, we didn't know that we were doing it. We were actually accessing stored potential energy in the inertial frame dragging effect or the curved space-time around Earth. That's the greatest unknown we have. Our biggest unknown now, when you talk about polarization of time, um, um, is our, our greatest challenge in that area really has to do with the boundary layer again and keeping uh, stability in the yeah. field when we try to reverse time rates. Well, one phenomenon that I have tried to design a, an experiment for and have failed to date is to determine whether any electromagnetic wave or any form of energy can have additional forms of polarization. I mean, you know, we've got the linear and the circular and random and all the different kinds of polarization you associate with waveforms. But one thing that I've never devised the experiment for, and you may actually have the tools to do this, is if that inertial frame-dragging space, that point source, true point source, actually has spherical polarization. Uh, you know, if, if Rick, if, if I was sitting in a room of physicists and somebody, and, and, and not on a radio show, and somebody asked me what time was, I'd say time is a sphere. <laughs> that would be my first answer. And that's a long conversation, a lot longer than we have, have time on a, on a radio show. Um, but um, it is a fascinating field, and, and you're right, there's, there's so much we don't know. While we learn every day, um, understanding the true the true nature of time is, is quite complex, but but it's quite exciting as well. And um, and each I don't discrete know if I point, each discrete point in space, whether it's near a massive body or not, has its own space point and moment uh, moment of time and point in space. It has its own space time continuum. Its own space. And it's actually discrete and, to some mm -hmm. degree, independent of everything else. That's, that's well said. Actually, I'd like to go back, Rick, if I could, for, for the benefit sure. of the listeners on the show. Um, you mentioned a comment about other forms of polarization. You might have some young college students or scientists listening to the show now who say, oh, that's ridiculous. We know everything there is to know. And what I would I always like the analogy of the television. We know from modern physics that our reality is really a dynamic web of information and energy. And what we call reality is just our senses and our perceptions. But we know the universe is a dynamic web of information and energy. Um, almost every scientist agrees with that today. Um, and our, our, our human minds are like that old television set uh, sitting on the table. Um, there are waves, TV signals in the air made up of information and energy. And they fly through the air. and on the table, somebody turns a little device called a tuner that locks in to be able to sense and perceive that television channel. And our minds are just like that. Our minds and bodies' perceptions are like a TV tuner that's um, tapping into that 
universe of dynamic web, a dynamic web of information and energy. The problem is our tuner only gets a handful of channels because our senses are limited. Um, our ability to perceive is so limited. The reality is our universe is so complex, and what we sense with our senses and our human consciousness is such a small microcosm of a much larger macroscopic universe. And the idea that, that, that not only is there an additional type of polarization, there are probably additional dimensions of polarization. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and these labels um, actually uh, become sometimes our ways of trying to grasp with each new area as we step further and further into that dynamic web of information and energy. But I challenge your user, listeners that uh, really um, we really understand so little, we sense so little of that uh, reality in that universe that we're a part of. Oh, true. Agreed completely. Completely, yeah. I'm, I, I live my life in an isolated bunker in a rural area with you know, lots of firearms, but that's just me. Um, <laughs> Seriously, seriously. Rent out some space. I, I like that. Well, myself. some say I live in my, in my mother's basement here in Miami, Florida. So, oh, okay. That's either I understand. <laughs> the uh, the challenge for up and coming physicists, uh, well, all kinds of scientists, is to operate within the box while thinking outside the box. Yes, indeed. Yeah, this is the uh, this is the real challenge because you know uh, a lot of people associate certain type of communications and methods with being a reputable scientist. The truth is, the space time physicists I know, the first thing they learn about is understanding the limitations of the way their mind works and their bodies and uh, senses and perceptions work. And, and I'll give you an example. It's a very hard exercise. I did an exercise in. Um, Belgium uh, last year, and I had about 100 college students. They were physics students or computer scientists, and we took them through an exercise trying to understand invariance of the space-time interval, uh, this exercise I talked about earlier. And at the end of the program, only six of the students got it, but what was amazing, we had one of the students stand up. We gave them a complex problem in relativistic physics, and they solved it with basic algebra. Why? Because they could step past their mind's cultural definition that's been ingrained in their consciousness of what time is and what's acceptable, they could have that hypothetically even, and they could, once they do that, the beautiful thing about this for your listeners is once you do that and you realize that the complex mathematics of space-time physics can be based on algebra, what's wonderful is once it's algebra, then you can visualize it. Once you visualize it, it becomes part of your belief system, and that right. is the beginning. Yeah. That's the beginning. The door opens up, and instead of guessing at this and getting buried in equations, you start sensing and feeling it. And some of the best students and the best scientists I see really have made this leap. David, uh, real quick, there's a caller who has his, hand, his or her hand up. Uh, are you uh, okay to take the call? Absolutely. It would be a pleasure. All right, 704, you're on the air on Skywatchers Radio TV with Rick Osmond, myself, and our guest of the night, Mr. David Lewis Anderson. Welcome to the show. Okay. Hello, 704. How you doing? Maybe they were overcome. Perhaps. Well, 704, if uh, you want to call back in, 
raise your hand again. Uh, sorry about that, guys. Uh, real quick, David, I uh, wanted to ask you, and this is something that when we were talking earlier kind of uh, caught my eye here. Uh, tell us a little bit about time warp field technology. The work you guys are doing, is it relatable at all to what Robert Mullet is working on, or is it something completely different? You know, actually, it's uh, 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 Dr. Mallet at the University of Connecticut. Is that who you're referring to? That's correct, yes. Okay. Um, I would say um, it, it is similar, but it's, it's quite different. What Dr. Mallet is working on, and, and we really like his work and we're following it, and, and I do believe he's going to get funding to, uh, uh, to develop it even further. But... Um, uh, what he's doing, what we're doing is, is, is basically we're solving the same problem and working on the same models but from two different perspectives. What he wants to do at a very uh, micro level is use light to create fields of closed time-like curves. So basically mm -hmm. what he wants to do is, in a sense, create effects of curved space-time um, or inertial frame drag, uh, or not right. inertial frame drag, but, but, but create curved space-time using light. And what's very different than us, what Dr. Mallet is doing, he's going to use a tremendous amount of energy to create curved space-time and in turn fields of closed time-like curves that allow you to move forward and backwards in time. What we've done is a very different approach. As I mentioned, I'm quite embarrassed to say we didn't understand it at first. We're doing the same thing, but instead of creating the curved space-time, we're harnessing the naturally occurring potential energy in the curved space-time surrounding the Earth create fields of closed timeline curves. So we're using, you know, it's like if somebody tells you to go, um, you know, I, I spent some time up in uh, upstate New York, and, uh, you know, if somebody says over in Buffalo they'd like you to build, um, you know, a plant that makes hydroelectric power, you say, okay, the first thing I need to do is I need to pump water up really high, and then I need to let it roll down a hill, um, run generators or turbines, and generate my electricity. Well, it's kind of the analogy here. What Dr. Mallet wants mm -hmm. to do, and there's tremendous validity here, he wants to generate his own fields of closed time-like curves in the lab. Uh, so basically what he wants to do is pump that water up the hill and let it fall down. What we're doing is saying instead of building that, ramping it up, let's go over to Niagara Falls and use the naturally occurring potential entry or the naturally occurring fields of curved space-time, use that energy and concentrate it uh, to do our work. And that's exactly what a time warp field generator does. Um, a time warp field generator uh, essentially um, is, uh, it, it basically uses energy within curvatures of space-time that surrounds a rotating path, mass, or an energy field mm -hmm. to create fields of those time-like curves. So we're using natural occurring forces to create those fields. And once you create those fields, you then have the ability to move matter or information right. order backwards in time. Well, let me ask you, would, will, would your machine, if it is ever created, will it, will it have the same limitations as Dr. Mallet's machine, meaning that you can only go back as far as the data was built, or would you be able to freely well, travel back anywhere you want? Well, this is, this is where um, I will probably... Um, I always create a little bit of, of conflict because it's not what we see in a lab. It's not an if we build the machine, uh, and it's not just the Anderson Institute. There are five agencies right now around the world who are exercising machines using different core technologies. And essentially okay. what we see, um, we see all these paradoxes. The paradox where you can't go any further in time than when the first time machine was built. You can't go back right. in time and kill your grandfather because if you kill your grandfather, you weren't born. 
so you couldn't have gone back in time. And you talk about all these paradoxes uh, when you start talking about the manipulation of, of timelines. The truth is um, it's not what we see in the laboratory. What we see in the laboratory is clear. Moving through space, moving through time, is very similar to moving through space. And I like to give the analogy of a, a flower bed. If, if I okay. were to walk across your front yard, um, in, in, across your garden, if you have a garden, your listeners have a garden, and to walk back, I move through space and I return to the same point. But essentially what I've done is I've affected the construct of reality. I've destroyed some life forms in that flower garden. I've maybe mm -hmm. kicked some seeds loose, which created some new life forms that will, will evolve from my action, even though I return to the same point in space. And the same thing is true in time. Moving backwards in time and moving forward in time, no matter what the level is, you do affect the construct of reality. And, and that really boils down to what some of the negative consequences are. There's, there's extreme risks here. And we actually see that, uh, a lot of these places, like the concept you can't go back further in time than the first time machine was built, um, right. is a fallacy. And actually what we're seeing um, and I don't want to get uh, spiritual here on your listeners, but if you take a look, it's what coming out, what's coming out of the new physics and what's coming out of the particle accelerators and super colliders around the world. What, what they show is the world is a dynamic web of information and energy. Matter can transmute into energy, energy back into matter. We're truly one dynamic web of information and energy. It has more in common with the ancient beliefs of Hinduism, Buddhism, and Taoism than it does classical physics. And the same mm -hmm. is true of the nature of the time. Uh, time is really, uh, what we label time, most people, is really a label put on by our biological and cultural evolutions. There are many cultures that believe there's no such thing as a past and present. All times exist at the same time. Um, oh, yeah. And I challenge your listeners to provoke them a little bit. If you don't believe time is a cultural byproduct of our cultural evolution as a society, um, why we in the West look at time literary, literally, if you sat down and you talked to a Buddhist monk and you asked him why was time linear, he would look at you as dumbfounded, dumbfounded as if you asked him, as if, if he told you time was a circle and it was a sphere. Um, it, it, cultures look at time differently. Even here in the Americas, for those people who are close, if you take a look at the uh, the cultures of the Navajo and the Hopi Indians here, uh, in their languages, they have no, no tenses for past and future. They never talk about, in their structure of their language, the temporal quality of an event, only the quality of the event itself. Uh, there's tribes down in South America, like the Paraha tribe, that has no concept of time as well. And so why we like to think time is a linear, um, uh, linear here, say, in this country, uh, I know you broadcast a lot of people listen to your show from around the world, but here in the United States, many people would say time is linear. Uh, that is completely dependent on culture. Some people don't see time mm -hmm. at all. Some yep. people see it as a circle. Some people see it as a sphere. And what many people see it is, and it's the way I think physics will evolve, is that all time exists here all at once. Yeah. Now, as, unless, go, ahead. go ahead, Rick. Unless you happen to be Stephen Hawking. Yes. <laughs> um, I have tremendous respect for Mr. Hawking. This would be one point I, I, I disagree with him on. Um, yeah. I, I think clearly, and, you know, I think it's clear, and we talk about reputable scientists, and, and even I think as a result of his last show, yeah. as part of the interviews, he even talked about yeah. this, why he's believed this in a long time. He's believed, you know, he believed time, time travel was possible. 
and he even published uh, even even shortly after he published his chronology protection conjecture, uh, which said you know it's not. But he didn't want to come out in public because it, it's you know he's hesitant but to he, do that. Same thing happened with first, parallel universes and now time travel. His first book about time, a brief history of time, said it's strictly linear. You can't change it. Period. That was his first That's, concept. But he has changed his tune by the decade. And Rick, so. this is why this is why I'm really so glad you raised the point because this is the there's a tremendous benefit of the scientific method, and and you and I are scientists. We live in this world, but also there's there's a, a risk with the scientific method. We actually have a documentary where we're talking about this for almost 20 or 30 minutes. The comparison of the scientific methods with others is that why would it take so long for Stephen Hawking to uh, to run through the scientific method to reach this conclusion, um, like he did with uh, time travel and parallel universes. Um, mm-hmm. the, one of the reasons is the scientific method, because it depends on describing things in terms of our human senses and perceptions that everybody else can understand and pass peer review, but we know those are flawed, and they don't see right. the universe as it really is. So I'm not suggesting that the scientific method should be thrown underneath the bus. Absolutely not. It just means maybe we're looking at a time in history when uh, maybe it's time to start looking at an evolution of the scientific method. I certainly hope so because it is in certain fields of research, physics not necessarily being the worst one. In certain fields of research it has become dogma rather than experiment and peer review. Um, I, I understand. I hear you. The other thing that I, I wanted to bring up, and just as an observation, not as a criticism of scientific method by any stretch of the imagination, but the science fiction writers have been ahead of that game with time, multiple universes, etc., mm-hmm. for as long as there have been science fiction writers. Now, why does it? Why is it such a leap? for scientists to even consider these far-out ideas when, you know, eventually they come around to so many of them, it's, it's almost scary. <laughs> do, you know, do you know when we talk, I mentioned earlier that we talked to college students, and uh, uh, one of the, the first exercises we use <clears throat> are the great works of, uh, of science fiction, because they have some very important lessons for scientists. Actually, I, uh, just a side note, I was getting very scared uh, earlier in my career that I was turning into one of those nerds wearing the lab coat with the pocket projector and calculator on my hip. And, and that's not <laughs> an exaggeration. So I actually got my doctorate in philosophy, and I did my uh, thesis on discovering harmony between science and spirituality, and I traced the views of time through science, religion, literature, and philosophy through all written history. And, and I found this to be very fascinating, and I realized there's so much there. I mean, science fiction's been around as, as long as 2000, since 2000 B.C. in the Gilgamesh epic. That was a yes. Babylon work that was searching for ultimate knowledge and immortality. But is it okay, uh, Andrew and Rick, if I mention some of my favorite works and why in science fiction? Yes. Absolutely. I bet we okay, have some great. in common. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, i tell you, um, th- there's three of them. Of course, uh, there's Edwin Abbott's Flatlands. That's one of my favorites. I'll come back to that. Then there was Mark Twain's uh, Yankee and the Court of King Arthur. And H.G. Wells introduced his classic work, The Time Machine, which has yes. never been – these are three of the earliest works that have lessons 
uh, that are teaching us as scientists today. H.G. Uh, Wells' work was fantastic. It's a book written oh, yeah. in 1895, obviously, that hasn't been out of print. There aren't too many books that can say that ever since it was written. But the most exciting book I ever read, it goes back to the points we were talking about and how the human, how our biological cultural evolution and our census limitations affect us. It's a book called Flatlands, uh, a romance of many dimensions, written by Edwin Abbott in 1880. And it talked about what happens. It talked about these little creatures. They were two-dimensional creatures. They lived in a two-dimensional world like a sheet of paper. And that's all they knew was those two dimensions. There were little dots moving around until they bumped into a line or went inside a box through a little opening, and they could move around in their two-dimensional world. Until so one day when a three-dimensional creature, a sphere, was moved through space that they couldn't sense, and that touched their two-dimensional world. Then it began passing through, and as it did, it grew bigger. And then as the sphere passed even further through, it started to shrink and then eventually disappeared. And for the two-dimensional creatures to visualize this three-dimensional um, uh, higher dimension or this creature is a very difficult proposition. And we know, um, just as uh, Dr. Michio Kaku has said many times, our world is made up of many dimensions. Our universe is quite complex. So what would, you know, we're, we can see three dimensions very easily. We sense that. The creatures of Flatland couldn't. How about us as we look at four dimensions? What would a four-dimensional creature look like if he moved into and passed through our world? How would we react to it? It would move like he was almost magic, even godlike. Um, uh, what would that be? And it talks about why we, we sometimes get very confident that we have a good understanding. The truth is we have a very difficult time seeing past our our, 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 our multi-dimensional world into higher dimensions, yet we know our universe has created uh, much higher dimensions. And this is why I saw Flatlands as being such an important work, because it, it talks about the ability and the difficulty as any person in any culture, any situation, to perceive and visualize higher dimensions. Yep. And since we got into the subject of uh, science fiction, time travel stuff, are you aware of the work of Michael Crichton called Timeline? You know, I am terribly behind on my books and my movies, Rick. Even though I am aware of it, I've never had a okay. chance to read it. I think it was turned into a movie, too, if I remember right. It, maybe not. it was, but I encourage you to do the, the literature version. Although the, <laughs> okay. the, the actual uh, screenplay was more exciting, it didn't have any of the background that you really need to understand Michael Crichton's concept of time travel which, by the way, he was a medical doctor, not a physicist, but he had a yes. pretty good grasp on a few things. And, uh, Rest in peace, by the way. Rest in peace, Michael Fratton. Great writer. Yes. And Timeline took in not only time travel, but also multiple universes all in one <laughs> fell swoop. And, yeah, I, he, and that's how he got over paradoxes. But there was a cost, which I won't spoil your enjoyment of the book with the cost. But well, now you're, now you're teasing me. I'm going to have to go read the book just to uh, <laughs> release the suspense. Welcome. Come check out Future Theater Radio, hosted by the wonderful Bill and Nancy Burns. If the name sounds familiar, that's because Bill Burns 
was the host of UFO Hunters on the History Channel. And Nancy Burns runs UFO Magazine at ufomag.com. Fantastic interviews and just great information that they are getting out to the people. Their shows air live every Saturday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can tune in by going to futuretheater.com. All their past shows are there in the archives, so you got some catching up to do. Future Theater Radio is going to be the next big thing in paranormal and UFO radio. Don't miss out on this great opportunity to be with them from the start. I'm Jamie Havikin for Future Theater Radio. Take care and keep your eyes on the sky. This is Dr. David Lewis Anderson, and you are listening to Sky Watchers Radio TV. Is the world coming to an end in 2012? Have aliens visited the Earth? Do ghosts haunt the living? Is time travel possible? Is there a government conspiracy to keep the dark truth hidden? Former Yahoo executive and lifelong student of the secret and suppressed Jesse Randolph asks the tough questions to bridge the gap between corporate America and new science. There are astronauts, and then there are euphonauts. Join Jesse Randolph in the truth journey, Saturday night, 9 to 10 on KPAM 860. Hello, remember to check out our Paranormal Radio Network, ParanormalSoup.com. Click the globe, it'll bring you right into our site. You can sign up, join up, get your own profile, and do with it as you like. It's a social network with a radio network at its core. It's the first of its kind, people, and has some of the best ufology and paranormal and entertainment radio shows out there. ParanormalSoupNetwork.com Be a part of this great evolution of social and radio networking. Don't miss out. Go sign up right now. ParanormalSoupNetwork.com Don't forget to check out the Reckoning Game Radio Show, a.k.a. Starship Smelling Prize, with your host, Captain Smell, so good, and international co-host, Sayonai, only on the Paranormal Soup Network. Why do you keep hearing us talk about Paranormal Soup? Have a look for yourself. ParanormalSoupNetwork.com Click the globe, it'll bring you right into the main site. It's a great website, a social network with a radio network at its core. And you can be part of it. You can have your own profile, interact, see when shows are coming on our calendar and events. You can take part in our forum post videos, blogs, and so much more. That's why we talk about it so much. And it's our home. It's the home to many radio shows. So what are you waiting for? 
go sign up now. ParanormalSoupNetwork.com Click the Big Earth, the globe, it'll bring you right in. On the top right hand side, you'll see Log In or Sign Up. Sign up, people. Because you want to be part of this. Trust me. ParanormalSoupNetwork.com Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. Uh, guys, we have, another, we have another caller on the line here who has their hand up. Uh, let's uh, get to them real quick, uh, and we'll get back to our conversation. It's 604. You're live on Skywatchers Radio with Mr. David Lewis Anderson, our guest of the night. Welcome. Evening, gentlemen. How are you? My name is Tanya Payne, calling from the province of British Columbia. I've only been on for about, oh, I guess about seven minutes, and I've enjoyed everything that you had to say. Um, I ran centers in the United States for a number of years, and I basically taught life skills, and I also taught uh, abilities in the field of psychic phenomena. And it's not the commercial viewpoint where it's like, woo, it's not like that at all. But would you like to have an experience of who you are in the abstract format? Would you like to see how that is? because I can actually illustrate it on your radio show. And um, one of the things that I want to tell you about time, be, you know, if I can contribute what, I, what I'd like to say, is that time is basically an agreed-upon factor. The whole physical universe is composed of space, energy, matter, and time. And the reason that we know time exists is because objects move. The sun goes up, the sun goes down, the tide comes in, the tide goes out. But I'd really like to demonstrate the abstract format in which you actually be. In other words, a legacy that has nothing to do with the physical universe. Would that be okay with you? Guys? Okay with me. It's your show, Jackal. Well, it's both our shows, but yeah, it's okay with me. Thank you. I appreciate that. If you can get the idea that your right hand is the whole physical universe, that would be every planet, every star, every galaxy, etc., and your left hand sits about four inches above that right hand, and that is who you are. Now, I'm going to describe who you are in words that are language that we understand, okay? But that hand can have the label of abstract, but we encompass the whole physical universe. That's our legacy, okay? And the name of the, uh, the writing about this is called The Wizard Spokes Being, and I'm it. We are the wizards of timelessness true. We are the wizards of the magical hue. Creations exist because of our cue. All of our creations are wondrous and new. We created the original notions and transformed them into powerful potions. The spirit of play came to be because of our infinite wizardry. We created the spirit of creation, and now we have unlimited spaceation. Every myth fable song of old is but a tapestry of wizard's gold. Simple and intricate, infinite and true, Wizards' creations exist just for you. You're natively all wizards more than you can see. Just recreate your ability to be. Ponder magical wonder on who you truly are. When you've certainty on being, let's go for a ride on a star. 
Well, it didn't take you long to do. I'm really so proud of you. How does it feel, pretty native all deaf, and it didn't take you long to get? Well, I promised you a ride on a star, and we don't even have to travel very far. We'll arrive where we're going in no time, and then we'll proceed to rock and rhyme. Well, here we are in the land of never. What do you see? Isn't it clever? A whole big space to play and be in. Gosh, all you could ever do is win. Look at the trees. Look at the skies. Look at the castles. Hear the wind sighs. See the colors of the rainbow stance. Wow, in the meadow below, people are doing dance. Flowers are pretty colorful, too, and look at that man with only one shoe. Be born again, a wizard true. Be a being with a magical view. Your own universe and others' terrain. Get on the bandwagon of this campaign. The magical state of wizardry is native to you, but then it's been a while since you've taken a cue. Oh, well, it really doesn't matter as long as you remember all this patter. The enchanting, the enhancing, the magical with an unlimited view, with certainty know the existence of any creation is directly dependent upon you. You've been magically dormant for a while, but that's okay. You woke up with a smile. Piss and vinegar, thundering incantations. Put on your hat and be a spiritual wizard of nations. It certainly has been nice addressing you, and now I'm certain you know what to do. Be enchanting, be enhancing, be magical with an unlimited view. With certainty know the existence of any creation is directly dependent upon you. The tapestry unfolds, the basis in time does does exist. Just a lady wizard spokesbeing communicating to several gentlemen wizards on blog talk radio in the Journal of Spiritual Myths. You are precisely an intelligent presence, possesses of spirit that animates a life form. Your legacy has nothing to do with the dimensions or the number of dimensions in a physical universe. You encompass the whole physical universe, and you can actually have a viewpoint of that. You can actually see the physical universe in that, you know, in that particular um, aspect if you want to. Uh, it's very easy to rehabilitate that state of existence. And I just wanted to share that with you because I loved everything that I was listening to you. I think the contribution that you're making with the enlightening things you're talking about is pretty spectacular. Thank you for letting me contribute. I appreciate it. Thank you, Carla. Thank you very much for your call. Okay. Lovely poem. Lovely poem, indeed. Any? you have any uh, final questions for, for our guest, Mr. Anderson, before we let you go, caller? Um, you know, I'd, I'd like to have a, yeah, it's contact information. I'd like his contact information. Actually, I'll make sure that I write down your show's name, but I'd like to, oh, this will be archived, won't it? Yes, yeah. ma'am, I definitely will. Okay, yeah. and uh, is it, will it be, uh, Mr. Anderson, do you have an email address, sir? Absolutely. Well, uh, hello in British Columbia, by the way. Welcome to the show. And uh, oh, you visit the AndersonInstitute.com, AndersonInstitute.com. I just had eyes and I'm not, totally, I'm not totally seeing. Let me grab a paper and, and a big pencil. <laughs> Hold on just a second. Um, sure. My eyes are still healing from major surgery, and I just got my sight back for the first time in two years. So. Oh, my. Okay. Uh, sorry about that, sir. Uh, can you give it to me again, please? Yes, AndersonInstitute.com. And uh, you, you'll find contact information on there. If you send it, just mention we spoke on the show, and it'll be rooted directly to me. Okay. Anderson Institute. Dot com. I got it. Thank you so much. I so appreciate it. I'd like to listen to more of your show. I like the things that you're talking about. They're really quite incredible. Thank you so much, dear, for your call, and have yourself a good night, and keep listening in, okay? Okay, thank you. Take care. You know, Angel, Angel, what I really liked about one of the things, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a scientist by background, a physicist, so some of it I can relate to, some of it I can't. But mm-hmm. um, what I really liked is uh, her comment about how as we as physical beings 
Um, mm-hmm. While we sense physical manifestations, we truly believe that it's it's really just artificially created by consciousness as we view right. this uh, information and energy. But the thing she said that really resonates with me is one of the reasons why we've come forward is that we as individuals don't just exist in time or one time or one place. We do encompass the whole physical universe, and, and that's really our, our concern. We see so many agencies, you know, we talked about the pros earlier of time control technology, but we haven't talked about the risks. Uh, to mm-hmm. yes. and, and that's where that. we really are now. We, mm-hmm. we, the, 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 wow. We've been, as a society, active, experimenting in time for a number of decades. The mm-hmm. range of technological possibilities and the capabilities of technology become so enormous that the only limitations now, what we do, can be the results of our imagination, which is insufficient. And that's what concerns us as scientists in the middle of this. We see the unprecedented acquisition of knowledge and the power uh, that comes with this technology. And in history, you know, if we look at the history of our societies on this planet, the higher the level of knowledge and power we had, also the greater must be our sense of more responsibility. And if we look at that, the world has survived. Every time we've found greater knowledge and power, we've always brought along a greater uh, level of moral responsibility serving the key foundation. And we can say it's been successful, but now what I'm really concerned about, many of my counterparts are, who are in this work every day, is that the human capacity for moral reasoning, while it's kept pace with other developments in human knowledge and capacities, the gap is too big now. Between time control technology and our capacity for more reasoning, we've reached a critical point where the gap is getting bigger uh, than our capacity for more reasoning. And, and we see some tremendous risks and, and many things that could go wrong if this technology is not handled uh, very carefully. You know, speaking of that, you know, one thing I've always heard, uh, if there ever is a possibility for time travel, you'll have to use energy, to, you know, the amount of energy, like, for example, the amount of energy there is in the sun, or maybe even more than that, uh, wouldn't that create a terrible risk factor? I mean, what kind of energy are you folks using to try to achieve this time machine or this time travel possibility? Yeah, actually, actually, that's a, a, a little bit, a little bit of an illusion because, or a little okay. bit of, a, I would say, is not not accurate. Um, and I hate to use that word so definitively. Um, is when you look at there's there's two types of time control. If you look at time control technology, there's about on our website you'll, your listeners will find about ten different a comparison of ten different technologies that say time travel that that support time travel within the laws of math and physics. Uh, three of those have been realized in, in the laboratory, and the technologies either fall into one of two categories. They're either relativistic-based technologies or technologies that use field close time-like curves. Relativistic-based technologies that you travel faster, accelerate more relative to something else, uh, time rates change. It's like that astronaut who travels to a distant star and returns to the Earth will be younger than the twin brother she left behind. That's one right. form of time travel. And to really make that meaningful, you would need a, a tremendous amount of energy. Um, mm-hmm. The other area would be um, uh, that was proposed as early as the 1940s by Kurt Goodell in Germany uh, and is, is supported by many uh, different technologies, creating fields of closed timeline curves. For your listeners, that's simply an approach uh, where, where fields can be created, where time can literally loop back on itself, even where you can travel into your past at speeds slower 
than the speed of light. And for your listeners who want to do more research, just visit our website or look up closed timelike curves, you'll learn more about it. The belief has always been that you needed tremendous amounts of energy. Right. That. And that's true. If you want to do it in the laboratory and create your own closed timelike curves, uh, it takes a tremendous amount of energy to bend space and time. However, mm-hmm. it occurs naturally. And that's what's unique about what the Anderson Institute is doing. Uh, we, we are basically harnessing the stored potential energy and curved space-time around the Earth, and we're concentrating it using time warp field generators into a smaller area. So we're creating fields of closed time-like curves using naturally occurring power. We have to actually use a lot of power to initiate a time warp field generator, but once it's running, um, the amount of energy required is, is actually quite low. So there's no chance that one of well, there's no chance one of these machines would just blow up from the amount of energy that's being used and take out half the world with it. There's no chance that would happen because that's really one of the biggest concerns that I know a lot of folks have uh, with these kind of experiments. That you know, like the particle collider, for example, uh, yeah. one of the main you know things that we you know we have as concern is that this thing could uh, detonate and explode half the planet or the entire planet as it is. Uh, what are the odds of that happening with uh, the way you guys are doing the experiments? Well, there, there's a lot of risk, and let me respond to your, your comments first. Um, there are – one of the things that I feel strongly about as a scientist, there are many times where scientists or nations or governments um, exercise technologies without understanding their consequences. Um, right. And, and yeah. I, I think as a society, people always used to ask me, if I could go back in time and do one thing, what would it be? And I always struggled with the answer because it's something I talk about so much and so many ideas. But the one thing I'd go back and change in time if I could would be where our society deemed it's okay to experiment with things that could, where they don't understand the consequences to other or sentient beings on this planet. And that's a big risk with time control technologies. I mean, we, we, you know, we talk about timeline contamination. When you look at, that's what you're talking about with these technologies is re-engineering mm-hmm. timelines. But not just re-engineering timelines. We're talking about redefining individual lives and consciousnesses. Um, the technology, you know, you talk about the super collider. Let's go back to that for a second before we come to the present state of technology. Um, I think it's fair. It's a fair statement. On one hand, a lot of, you know, we would say, um, yes, we're experimenting with technologies, approaching energy levels, or using techniques in the laboratory that have never been done before. We're going to open up a black hole. Well, on the other hand, the argument is very simple. If you look at the, uh, the new collider in Europe and you look at the energy level, the average experiment has the energy level of a small canary. Okay, so what you know, if you made equivalent energy levels, uh, to put it in perspective for your listener, there's not, they're not ripping the fabric of, of space and time. They're stu- studying things at a very microscopic level, with relatively low energy levels, even if they're higher than previous particle colliders. But with regards to um, these time control technologies, um, we really don't understand the consequences of moving information forward or backwards in time. It's also the issue when you move a living organism forward or backwards in time. Essentially what we call internally transcription errors, where, where the accelerated time rates, if they're not consistent through an entire living organism, can actually cause transi- transcription errors changing the 
physical makeup of these organisms at different points in their bodies, which can be quite catastrophic. And in our first early generators, we had a big problem with what I called earlier the boundary layers, a very dangerous area uh, where a living organism does not want to be. The transcription errors, if I may jump in here, the transcription errors, uh, Michael Crichton beat you to that one, by the way. Uh, <laughs> oh, yes? Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, with with catastrophic results in some cases. And, of course, the more jumps you make, the more transcription errors you receive. It would be very difficult to perceive. Actually, Rick, when we had our first time work field generator, um, what would happen is we'd put living organisms initially in the first generation, like plant seedlings, inside the field. And what would happen would be, remember I mentioned the time rates are different inside the field than outside. And the transitions occur in a thin boundary layer. But what would happen every now and then, that boundary layer would collapse, and it would engulf part of that living organism. Think about what's happening at a boundary layer. Time rates are drastically changing. So essentially, there is a significant and extreme Dopplering effect that happens at the boundary layer to energy that touches it or passes through, which means energy that is visible in the visible spectrum would disappear. Uh, energy that was invisible would appear, but it also meant that within the boundary layer, energy levels that were harmless could be offered up to very dangerous uh, levels of radiation. And that's one of the first areas where we had issues. But when you talk about, you know, Angel, you know, re-engineering historical timelines, uh, you're talking about uh, potentially making changes that have a ripple effect or a butterfly effect that could right. uh, dramatically affect human society. Uh, everything from introducing new viruses by reaching forward or backwards in time, causing genetic changes that are unnatural or force unnatural rate of change. Uh, we talk about the weaponization of the technology uh, and the possibility for global catastrophe through time wars. Uh, many governments look at, you know, using this technology for strategic advantage. Uh, we've had seen, we've met with ministries who talk about, is it possible to send information backwards in time to redefined, refined decisions you make on a battlefield to produce a better outcome, potentials for extinction of the human race, even harm, harmless things. One of the things that, for example, um, in the U.S. a lot of people are concerned about is the social unrest that could mm -hmm. be created yes. by this technology. Let's mm -hmm. talk about a few simple examples. What about the events that define certain things that are sacred to us, like points and points very important points in different religions, uh, whatever they would be? What if we go back in time and find out they were completely true? What if we find out they were completely false? Um, mm -hmm. What happens when the time control technologies do become public? Who's going to have access to them? Who's going to decide how it's going to be used? Uh, the social unrest is equally in risk, which is why some agencies are quite concerned about making information public. Well, David, this brings up the question, why isn't there more of a public outcry to actually try to regulate this technology? Actually, um, primarily because most of the technology is is well hidden. You know, it was actually very interesting to me. For example, Rick was quite aware that mm -hmm. uh, the U.S. government was funding experiments in superluminal propagation where Princeton University was using a 10-centimeter long cesium chamber to send information faster than the speed of light. How many of your listeners knew that that was going on? How did the U.S. government years ago. How many people were aware of what the Soviet Union and the Moscow Aviation Institute was doing on time control technology in the 1960s? Who's aware of what's happening in S4? 
at the Anderson Institute, at the, at the Defense Research and Development Organization in India and Japan. Uh, it's controlled greatly. Many of these governments don't know how to bring it out into the public, or they don't want to. Uh, they don't want to because they don't have all the answers. They don't want to perhaps because um, they want to keep, you know, and they, it's contradictory to our goals. But, you know, again, what is the point of a nation? To survive and prosper. What is the fundamental kind of strategy? I have the luxury. I've been through uh, military warfare college, uh, strategic planning classes in business, uh, in the military, and what's a fundamental of a tenet of every strategy? Keep your technology a secret. And it's mm -hmm. no different than any other advanced technology we have. It doesn't matter what it is. Pick any military, advanced military technology that's made public. It was available typically 15 to 25 years earlier um, and kept from the public. And, and that's just the natural course. What's different about this technology, we're not talking about stealth technology. We're not talking mm -hmm. about Star Wars. What we're talking about is a technology that is so complicated we can't understand the consequences of what happens when we exercise it. And we're talking about changing the construct, re-engineering historical timelines or changing the construct of reality or introducing rates of change that would be unnatural and potentially catastrophic to the human race. And that's what's really different about this. And this is why I think it needs to, this needs to come out. Um, I think it's even more serious of an issue than nuclear energy and, and the regulation. Um, oh, I, I concur. And definitely, yeah. if I can, if I can go into a, a little bit different line of questions, if I may, for just a moment, would you describe your, your progress to date as using the R and D vernacular? Are you at 6.0, 6.1, 6.2? Where are you in the development of this? Uh, I would, uh, it's a difficult question to answer because I always, we always have to be careful. We don't want to fall into the trap at the Anderson Institute about thinking we truly now have understand and solved the great mystery of time. It hasn't happened. But let me be, let me maybe be a little bit, um, a little bit more specific for you. Uh, by location. As I mentioned, I've had the opportunity to work with uh, different institutes and and uh, see their reactions. In Japan, um, they're working on uh, the transmission of information forward and backwards in time. They've taken uh, the work of uh, that you've seen, for example, at Princeton University, and they've expanded that uh, by an order of thousands of percent. They're really working on ways to consistently and uh, predictably send information and not just leading edge of pulses, long streams of data forward and backwards in time, specifically backwards in time. Um, in the United States, there's activities. Everybody's pretty much aware of where uh, Dr. Mallet and Yukon is heading. S4 keeps mm -hmm. their operations pretty quiet. We talk about, people are, are aware of our time warp field generators that we've been developing for the last 25 years. Uh, we just bought last year a patent for what we call a time reactor. Uh, one of our steps in disclosure, the actual patent application is on our website uh, that describes the fundamental nature of the technology. Uh, India, as I mentioned, uh, their operation, not only are they exercising uh, time control experiments, uh, they have developed complete mission plans and operational scenarios that have rooms uh, dedicated to 
prototypes of new commercial products based upon this, a lot of them focusing specifically in the military application. A lot of the scientists there in India also believe that, uh, and I respect them highly, I disagree with them on this one. They do feel that could send drones through time to record data information and to retrieve it uh, without creating such a great risk to the historical timeline or the construct of reality. And unfortunately, I disagree with that because um, the, the web of interdependencies is so complex, I don't think they can permit But they actually have these devices. They have the technologies being exercised. I can only talk for a fact what I've seen in the U.S., uh, what I've seen in, uh, uh, just west of a lake in Japan, um, in the Pune district and outside of Mumbai at the DRDO, uh, the technologies are being exercised. In India, by the way, uh, they're working on the transport of matter and living organisms. In Japan, their focus has really been information only. And for those of you who are physicists or physics students, understand the difference. Uh, a lot easier to transmit information forward backwards in time than mass. It gets a little more complicated. David, what do you think? Go ahead, Rick. I'll ask my question after you. Go ahead. A couple dozen orders of magnitude more difficult, but... Um, <laughs> Actually, that's probably the right number, come to think of it. Anyway, the um, the information transmission, presumably you would have to have a receiver at the other end, like Dr. Mallet. Am I right. missing something here? That, that is correct. If you, if you are using a technology of quantum tunneling and superluminal propagation, the statement that you can't send information further back than when that device was first created is... Um, is or the receiver is first created, let's put it that way, is very true. When it comes to using okay. fields close time-like curves, we're no longer talking about quantum tunneling, superlumen propagation, uh, it falls apart. It's just a, 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 something our minds perceive as a paradox, which is where rational minds hit their own limitations. So I guess, so I guess if Dr. Mallet is successful, then pretty soon we'll be reading about him winning a lottery, won't we? <laughs> yeah, it comes well, back to the ethical and the moral issues of using technologies. You know, it's it's a hard, it's a it's a very difficult scenario because, uh, and this is this is why we feel so much. We need to have a moral compass guided by a global consciousness that can really determine how this is used. Because while the intents are great hey, there's a natural disaster. We send information back in time. We send a cure back in time for a disease. Um, and we want to alleviate the suffering. We have great hearts. We have great intentions. But when we take that action, the ripple effect may create more damage than the suffering that's alleviated. And the question is, is it okay to roll the dice with other living people, organisms, societies, and consciousness on this planet because we think something is good for us, good for a small percentage of the population, or good for a whole without understanding the consequences. Um, well, you know, it's a very important moral and ethical issue. There's another aspect to this, because I, I pay attention to this in other realms of weaponization. If the technology matures sufficiently, then what do you feel would be the uh, possibility or probability of a rogue individual or organization gaining access to the technology and weaponizing. Well, that's why that's why what you mentioned earlier 
but your ability to de uh, detect temporal anomalies is so important because we, we need to have full trans transparency and disclosure. We need education. We need that moral compass to guide and decide how technology is further developed or used, but we must be able to monitor. Uh, we have okay. to be able to monitor. That, that brings the question up. Once you detect that tremor, that means the event has already occurred. How do you then, yes. How do you how do you fix it? How do you control it once the event has already occurred? Because if they went, I mean, you can't track them. You don't know where or when, when specifically they went, or send information. Um, what do you do with well, the information that you get from your detector? Well, a lot of naive people would say, well, if that, if that event that was manipulated in the, uh, in the timeline didn't wipe out your own time machine, you go back in time and you prevent it from happening. Uh, uh, but uh, like I said, a lot of people naively think, um, and that's where this, this, this will come into play. A temporal detector, uh, our temporal tremor detector, the network that we propose and we build prototypes on, um, only detects after the fact. Uh, and that's where we get concerned as well about the concept of the world's first great time war. When people start exercising this technology re-engineering historical timelines for their own advantage. David, and David your phone is uh, very staticky. I don't know. Are, are you moving around a oh, lot? I'm sorry. Um, how's, how's it now? That's good. A little bit better, yes. Yeah, we were losing you there for a second. Uh, continue. Yeah. yeah, I'm losing you too. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but I'll try to speak a little louder. But that's what we're worried about is people beginning to compete, uh, re-engineering historical timelines and mm -hmm. creating even a greater ripple effect uh, that affects more people. Okay. Yep. So, so the selfish person, I mm -hmm. might even be included in that group, who oh, wants to go forward <laughs> long enough to grab those lottery numbers. <laughs> and, and then have, you know, have a life of leisure for whatever time I have left, please pardon that pun, um, do you feel that, that a simple act like that, you know, I say simple, but in concept compared to all these other ramifications, it's a simple act, do you feel like there might be some dire situations result from a simple jump like that? I think absolutely. I think it goes even further. A lot of the tests that we do in the experiment, the operational, the operations that we run, as well as our counterparts in Japan and India, we're quite familiar with what they do. We do controlled experiments with um, very, very controlled environments in very, very remote areas, and we're quite concerned about that. The idea of doing something that is uh, uh, affect so many people. Yes, we are concerned about the ripple effects. Uh, if you could do one thing with this technology, what it would it do? Would it be to go forward in time and bring back a cure for cancer? What are the ramifications of that? Is it to win the lottery? Um, the, the moral and ethical area here is quite complex. This also underlines why this technology is so different. Um, we danced on the edge of the razor with nuclear energy, for example. And, uh, uh, but this is a little bit different, um, uh, as dangerous in some ways as nuclear energy itself. Uh, and, and we have to be very, very careful about this exercise. But the only way to solve the problem, and this is the point, 
is not to keep it secret anymore. It has to be disclosed. The work has to be made transparent everywhere. We need a, a global educational initiative, which the Anderson Institute is trying to drive, and we don't have many partners coming public and joining us. Uh, very soon. Uh, we need to get that uh, World Time Council, as they would, and the proposal that we have already drafted uh, that becomes the policing agency for this. Uh, and then we need to set up that uh, network of global monitoring uh, to police the use of the technology. It's no different than nuclear energy. We can, going back to Rick's point, we can sense when it's used, but it's too late at that time. Right. Correct. Yeah. All we can do is pinpoint where to send the humanitarian aid. Yeah. Um, <laughs> along with the radiation suits. The, uh, first of all, I want to thank you, Angel, for getting is it Mr. It'd be Dr. Anderson, wouldn't it? Uh, I'll answer to just about anything. If that's nice stuff called. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, anyway, you can call me about anything except late for supper. At any rate, I want to thank Angel for getting you on here, and I want to thank you for coming on here and addressing some of my esoteric, I guess, physics questions, as well as some of the moral dilemmas that this technology brings with it. And I agree mm -hmm. that the technology has a lot of potential to benefit mankind, as well as other kinds, and it also has great potential to ruin everything. Oh, yes. Um, and I still want to get those lottery numbers. Anyway. <laughs> I understand. As one, person, <laughs> as one person who used to wear the light blue uniform to another, thank you for your service, sir. Oh, thank you for the same. It's a privilege to, uh, I know you serve for the country, and uh, I wish you all the best. It was a real pleasure speaking with you tonight. You too, and I have to get going, but uh, I hope to speak with you again in the future. Please pardon that pun. I just had to get there. <laughs> well, I look forward to speaking with you in the future or the past, so I'll, I'll take it either way. There you go. And uh, with that, I'll take my leave, and I'll catch you all later. Angel will probably catch you after the show. Thank you, brother, for calling in and being the co-host for tonight. Uh, Dr. Anderson, uh, yes, real sir. quick, before we do let you go, I do want to ask one question. Uh, because, you know, Skywatchers Radio TV is a show that based, is based mostly on ufology. We speak a lot about ufology. And one theory that a lot of folks have is that a lot of these UFOs that people are seeing are nothing more than us in the future time traveling back into the past. Uh, what would you think, as your expert opinion, will be the easiest or most fundamental right idea or right theory that they're coming from another world in our existence or that they could exactly be that, just time travelers? Which do you think is more plausible, basically, is my, my question. Well, it's, it's, it's a great question, and um, I'm not an expert in uh, ufology, uh, but I can offer one view on this, and, and I'm not the kind of person who likes to speculate, so I'll, I'll respond to you just a little bit differently. Um, if, if I were to hypothetically... Uh, knowing the technologies that we use and are being exercised in India, mm -hmm. and I was hypothetically say that sometime uh, in the future, a craft is built that moves through time, and I were to compare what the physical effects would look like uh, to somebody who would be, say, on the earth witnessing that craft as it appeared, as it moved, what would be the sensations in terms of perceptions of that individual, of sound, of, uh, of light, and other phenomenon, um, it's almost a perfect alignment with many of the reports you see from people who provide details about UFO sightings. 
And so there's Correct. a tremendous amount of consistency in the way UFO um, uh, people who report UFOs see light react and sound phenomena and other physical perceptions that seem to hold a lot in common with uh, the use of time-controlled technologies for that. And uh, there's a very, very high correlation there, a very, very high correlation. Other than that, I, I couldn't speculate more, but I always find it to be quite an interesting topic. And heck, they could be from another planet, distant galaxy far, far away, and still be time travelers. Uh, maybe to get here, they still have to go through some time travel method. It's uh, definitely one of my favorite theories in ufology. Uh, they could just be from the future or something like that. Uh, Dr. Anderson, has been an honor having you on the show. Thank you so much for being part of Skywatchers Radio TV tonight. And uh, I know that our listeners definitely enjoyed having you on here, and the doors open uh, whenever in the future you want to come back and be a guest on here again. We're, like I said, we do a show not only here on Block Talk Radio, but we do a webcam TV show as well, and we'd love to have you on there sometime. Uh, it's been an honor. And one more thing before I do let you go, I'd like to ask you for one small favor. Uh, We do something here with all our favorite guests. We get bumpers from them, real quick bumpers. Could you say for me, this is Dr. David Lewis Anderson, and you're listening to Skywatchers Radio TV. Well, certainly. This is Dr. David Lewis Anderson, and you are listening to Skywatchers Radio TV. Thank you so much. That is perfect. See, a brilliant mind gave us a brilliant bumper. Thank you, sir. Dr. Anderson, you do great work, and, uh, you know, again, we applaud you here on Skywatchers Radio, and I uh, hope you're ready for the deeming out process from our show here. Uh, it's a little bit of a, of a hectic process. Some folks have been known to beam out on the other end with their heads on backwards. So please sit tight. We're about to beam you out of the show. Are you ready for this, sir? I'm ready. I'll put on my transcription protection suit, and uh, I'm ready to go. Sounds like a plan. Guys, let's beam Dr. David Lewis Anderson off the show, and thank him once again for being a part of Skywatchers Radio. Take care, so have yourself a good night. Lock one, lock two, lock three, lock Lorman. And there he goes. Hopefully he landed in one piece on the other side. Great interview, great guest, uh, a brilliant mind, like I said. Everybody, please check out the website, uh, Dr. Anderson. In fact, uh, I have to beam him back because he, I did promise him one thing. And, Dr. Anderson, I know you're still listening, uh, so I'm going to beam you back in to get one yes, more sir, thing out of Immediately, sir. Wait a minute. You're still in one piece, right, Dr. Anderson? Yes, sir. Your technology is working 100%. Perfect. Now, this is the first time I've ever had to beam somebody back in because I promised uh, that I was going to give you five minutes to actually give out a little information, and you know, I keep my word. So here you go, sir. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Um, for, for your listeners out there, uh, time control technology has been being exercised in agencies since the 1960s. Uh, the work being done out there is very real. I would really encourage you. It's very important. We need everybody's help uh, to, to really bring this out into the open. As I mentioned, we must demand transparency and disclosure on everybody active with this technology. There's a lot of questions that have to be answered, and we need your help. Um, and, and, and the real question that we all have to answer is, what do we do with this new knowledge and technology? We have the ability in the future or to re-engineer this 
historical times. What do we do with the knowledge? How do we handle it? Who should have access to the knowledge, giving its social and personal implications in relation to anything and anyone and everywhere? These are just a few of the questions uh, that need to be addressed. People's life choices and even their self-identity, even their existence, may be significantly affected if we don't apply the technology wisely, not as an individual, a single government, a single agency, a single company, but as a human society as a whole on the planet. And we have to work on that together. And the only other thing I'd like to do is just mention real quickly um, a, a reference of our foundation. Uh, in addition to the work I do with schools and universities around the world, I do work as an ambassador for youth for the United Nations. Uh, foundation is the World Genesis Foundation, uh, worldgenesis.org. I'd encourage everybody to visit there, and if you're ever interested in partnering on a project, we'd be happy to, uh, to work with anybody out there. For now, I just wish uh, um, all your listeners a wonderful morning, afternoon, or evening, wherever in the world they are, and I look forward to speaking with everybody again sometime soon. And I look forward to definitely having you back on the show soon, sir. You're a brilliant mind, like I said, and you've been a wonderful guest for the evening. Thank you so much again for being on here. And uh, now we're going to beam you off for real this time. Okay. You're gone. <laughs> okay. Have yourself a good night, Dr. Anderson. Take care. Will do. Lock one, lock two, lock three, lock Loman. Well, folks, that is the great Dr. Anderson. Hopefully he's in one piece on the other end there. Uh, we do look definitely forward to having him back on the show here. I really did enjoy having him on for an hour and 30 minutes, hour and 40 minutes, however long it was. It, it just flew right by. It really could not have been long enough. Uh, we could sit here and really talk all night to this gentleman. Uh, time travel is one of my favorite theories in science. Uh, whether it will be, ever be achieved or not, I really don't know. I can't really say. Uh, you know, they're doing the work. I applaud them for doing the work that needs to be done to see if we can get to do some, you know, actual time traveling. Uh, the, the, you know, the paradox that could happen if we do go back in time is a scary one. If we mess something up in the timeline, I do think there definitely should be a regulation on time travel. Of course, we've all, we've all seen the movies. We all know the paradoxes from, like, Back to the Future and all the other movies. And it's a little scary to think that that could actually happen, but Theoretically enough, it could happen. So who knows? And so we are careful as a society and as scientists building these machines, and we are careful what we're doing because this could end up blowing up right in our face or it could end up being a great tool for society, one or the other. Uh, guys, we'll be back on Skywatchers Radio TV next Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday over on People's TV Network on the Webcam TV show. Of course, last week we had, we had Mr. Steve Bassett on, the godfather of exopolitics himself. Next week we promise to have a great round of three shows for you guys. Myself, Jesse Randolph, Rick Osman, and Jamie Havican, who probably is in a coma right now, will be definitely on the show next week sometime during the weekend. We'll all be there to uh, explore space a little bit more to talk about the subject that we all love talking about, which is ufology, which is science, which is the new guard. Skywatchers Radio is the new guard, guys. And for the last two minutes here, that before we do get off the air, I want to play a couple more promos just to get going. Thanks again to everybody who came out to the show tonight, and we look forward to having you guys back on next week right here on Block Talk Radio on Friday night as well at midnight 
That's at 12 o'clock Friday night, Saturday morning. Of course, tomorrow night you can find me on my other show, The Jackal's Head, over on tenacityradio.com. Please bookmark that website. That show is at 10 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. And I'm going to have Dennis Whitney on the show with me. We're going to talk about the Galactic Federation of Light, amongst other very interesting subjects. So check that show out tomorrow night on Tenacity Radio with Dennis Whitney and myself. Take care, everybody. All systems are functional. I'm going to pass the reins to Mr. Jackal, the, the new king of Block Talk Radio. This is the Oz Man, one of the voices in the Jackal's head. Are we alone in the universe? Now, I'm a voice from the Jackal's head. Ready? Great job. Is there life after death? I'm Nick Pope, and now I'm a voice inside the Jackal's head. Is the government keeping secrets from us? This is Stephen Bassett, and uh, I am now a voice inside the Jackal's head. Will the Cubs ever win the World Series? <laughs> I am now a voice inside the Jackal's head. And that was voice high. Who the hell <laughs> are these voices inside my head? To find out, listen live on Raw Talk Radio's The Jackal's Head. <laughs> It's me again, Jamie Avakin for FloridaUFORadio.com. If you haven't done so already, please come on over to FloridaUFORadio.com and sign up with us. You can become a member, post blogs, post videos, and post in our forum. Best of all, you can interact with other members and be a part of Florida UFO Radio every week. It's a great and growing site, and I would like for you to be a part of it. FloridaUFORadio.com is your place. Come on over. We have 24-hour live UFO talk radio. Hope to see you there, folks. This is Jamie Havikin, and I'm out of here.